Talk to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. The Call for Presenters is now open for Velocity London 2017. Velocity is inviting proposals from system engineers, architects, developers, system administrators, operation managers, site reliability engineers, and more. People on the front lines with stories of great success and worthy failures, especially if they provide clear ideas for what to do next. Proposals will be considered for the following types of presentations. 40-minute presentation discussions or panels, as well as three-hour tutorials. Deadline to apply is May 2nd. For more information and to submit your proposal, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 68627. The call for presenters is now open for software architecture in London. Proposals will be considered for both 50- and 90-minute presentations, as well as three-hour tutorials. 50-minute sessions will be interspersed throughout the conference to introduce new concepts, a best practice, a view into the future, while 90-minute sessions will dive deeper, giving you information, techniques, and workflows you can bring back to work and begin using immediately. They are also looking for intense three-hour tutorials that involve hands-on examples, working with other attendees, and frameworks and processes to improve for significant change in your current architecture. Apply to speed by May 2nd. For more information and to submit your proposal, Visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 68630. Tickets for Flatmap Oslo are available now. Flatmap Oslo is a functional programming conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no to learn more. ElixirConf EU will be taking place on May 4th and 5th with the tutorials on May 3rd. ElixirConf EU is a community conference created to promote education, networking, and collaboration within the Elixir, Erlang, and Ruby communities. For more information, visit www.elixirconf.eu. OSCON will be taking place May 8th through the 11th in Austin, Texas. The O'Reilly Open Source Convention combines the experience of the open source community with ideas and strategies for using open source tools and technologies and gives you exposure to the full stack and all possible configurations. There's no event quite like OSCON, the best place on earth to sharpen your skills and discover new techniques, making you better at what you do and igniting your love of all things code. Registration is now open and save 20% on most passes with code USRG. For more information and to register, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 50016. LambdaConf will be taking place May 25th through 27th in Boulder, Colorado with training days available on the 22nd and 23rd, and many conferences on the 24th. For more information, visit lambdaconf.us. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zapuki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and the rest of the speaker lineup is online. Early bird tickets are sold out, but standard tickets are still available. For more information, to register, visit elmeurope.org. Zurich Hack 2017 will be taking place in Zurich on the 9th through the 11th of June. Beginning of June 2017, the Zurich Haskell Meetup Group will organize Zurich Hack 2017, a three-day Haskell hackathon hosted at the HSR Hochschule for Technique Rappersville. This is the sixth Haskell hackathon organized by the Zurich Haskell Meetup Group and the first one which is hosted at the HSR, a fantastic venue located right at Lake Zurich and providing space for 300 participants. For more information and to register, visit zurihack.info. Oslo Elm Day is a one-day conference about the Elm programming language and practical use of Elm in Norway and the Nordics. It will be held in Oslo, Norway, Saturday, June 10th. To find out more about the conference, visit osloelmday.no. Curry Barcelona will be taking place June 19th through the 20th. A new and unusual non-profit conference focused on programming languages and emerging challenges in industry Curion is a new conference focused on the intersection of emerging languages and emerging challenges in the industry, as well as new ideas and paradigms in software development. Curion also seeks to act as a conduit for fearing understanding and ideas back and forth between industry and academic programming languages, software engineering, and system research communities. For more information and to keep an eye open for registration, visit www.curry-on.org/2017. O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be taking place June 19th through 22nd in San Jose, California. 
Fluent spotlights the crucial technologies and frameworks of the web stack, JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, React, Angular, Containers, Docker, and other emerging tools that are transforming the way web developers work. Join hundreds of leading experts, innovators, and web professionals for top-notch training, advanced development and engineering content, and career-building networking opportunities at Fluent. Save 20% with discount code USRG on most passes. For more information and register, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 61309. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what is happening in the language, in the communities, and in companies using closure. The CFP is currently open and closes Friday, April 21st, and registration is currently open as well. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to keep updated. BuzzConf is a nonprofit open space conference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming related topics in any language. Ticket registration is already open, and you can find out more at www.bush-conf.org. The Strange Loop CFP is open. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens in early June 2017. Please apply to present. The CFP can found at the website, thestrangeloop.com, and follow the links to submit talk. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery and a big hug out to everybody who's already supported. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Jay McCarthy. Jay, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure, yes. My name is Jay McCarthy. I'm a professor at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, and I'm a member of the Racket Development Team, and I've been working on Racket for about little more than 10 years as one of the developers, and I've been a user for a bit longer than that. And I'm involved in lots of different things in Racket, and we can talk about those later. And I got you as a recommendation from a listener saying, hey, I'd love to hear Jay McCarthy. I think he'd be interesting to hear as a guest to talk about Racket. So that puts you on my radar. Looked at your site. You've done quite a bit, and we'll get into that and the stuff you've done around Racket. But what got you into software to begin with? And then let's lead into what got you exposed to functional programming and racket. Sure. So I'm a child of the 80s. And so I'm one of those people that kind of got a computer early and had a lot of fun with it. My first computer actually was a Ultrix um, terminal because my dad was one of the developers of the digital Unix kernel. And so the first time that I ever used a computer was connecting to a digital Unix machine and using the terminal there. Eventually, we got a IBM PC at home. But I think I had DOS installed for maybe like six months before one of my dad's friends gave me the very first Slackware installation diskettes. And so I installed Slackware and you know was a Linux user from maybe when I was seven or eight until when I was in grad school. Basically, I switched to OS X. And I got into software because when you're using Unix, it's very natural to want to solve problems yourself. And so I got into software from that. And I started off programming in Pascal and then in C. And then for a long time, I worked in Perl in like the early 2000s, working on at a software company. And then I eventually 
wrote a continuation-based web server in Perl. And then when I was learning about what exactly I had discovered, because I didn't really know what that was, but I just kind of slowly evolved something. And as I tried to read about what it was that I was imitating, I learned about the Racket web server, which is one of the first continuation-based web servers. And so that sort of got me into the Racket world, and I never really turned back. While I was in grad school, I broadened my education about functional languages. I programmed a lot in Maud. I learned Haskell and ML. But I did most of my dissertation work in Coq. So today, I primarily program in Racket, C, and Coq. So if you're starting early and doing Pascal and the C-based languages for Unix, and then you go into Perl and you're doing some of this stuff, what put Racket on the radar? Was that just you were reading about it and decided to go down into the functional programming list world rabbit hole? Or how was that exposure? Was that just starting with grad school too, of being exposed to some of these ideas? So I would say that there were two main motivations. Motivation one was really just doing a literature review on this one particular technique that I was applying of continuation-based web servers. And the only place to learn about that was inside of Racket where there was an existing continuation-based web server. And of course, when you're interested in continuations, all the background theory and work on it is from the scheme world. Of course, you know, one of Paul Graham's early essays is about a CPS macro, and there is a CPS form inside of standard ML. But pretty much, if you are care about continuations, then you care about scheme. Now, on the other hand, the other reason that I got interested in functional programming was, you know, from being quite early age, being interested in Unix, I really cared about new operating system ideas. So, of course, there's like Plan 9, which is very exciting, which I read a lot about. And as I learned more and more about operating systems, I thought that I wanted to be a kernel developer, you know, just like dad. As I learned more about operating systems, the ones that I was most interested in were not the ones that were taking Unix and adding some little thing to it, but were ones that were providing a new programming model. And the idea was that if you had this new programming model, then certain features of your development or deployment environment would become easy. Just as an example, a lot of security vulnerabilities come from exposing features to programmers. So if you take those features away, then those vulnerabilities can't exist. Other things like distributed computation, if you allow the program to observe less about the context that it's running in, then now distribution is easier. So learning about operating systems, I sort of slowly evolved from operating systems into caring about programming environments. And that's really why I got interested in programming language research and functional programming in particular. Because a big part of programming language theory and research work is saying what question or property that we want our programs to have, and let's change the language to make it so that it's easy to provide that property. You can look at things like modern popular languages like Rust. The goal is memory safety, and how can we modify the language to provide this feature? And that's really how I got interested in programming languages and functional programming in particular. So from the operating system side, it sounds like I've heard other people talk about where we're going to put more constraints on you, but that's also going to give you more freedom because you're not going to have to worry about those choices. You're not going to have to worry about, are you going to shoot yourself in the foot or blow your hand off or do whatever you're going to do because you're constrained, but that also frees up a lot of mental resources to think about problems in that different way and not have to worry about those things. So it was kind of that kind of idea that attracted you with the operating system. Sure. I mean, like garbage collection is a classic example of this, right? Where when you're programming in a low level language, you have to be concerned with the ownership of data and how the data flows throughout your program so that you can know when to free memory. But what garbage collection does is it, from one perspective, takes away your ability to make those decisions, but by centralizing it inside of the language runtime, the language runtime can compute the global liveness property and thus enforce garbage collection. Why I got interested in Racket in particular is there's this early paper by the other main people in Racket. You know, I'm sort of like the second generation of Racket people. There's, you know, Matthias, Matthew, Robbie, Sriram, and they sort of formed the first group of Racketeers. And then people like Sam and I really came in after them. So anyway, so one of their early papers is called Revenge of the Son of the Lisp Machine. And this paper talks about Dr. Racket 
and the Racket environment as being like an operating system. There are many features that it provides to give isolation between different parts of the programming environment. A classic example of this is that when you're running a program inside of Dr. Racket, it doesn't like fork a process and run a separate Racket virtual machine and let the program that you're running run over there and then can share the results back. That's kind of the way that Emacs would work, where you'd have your inferior process that would be the REPL, and then Emacs is just an editor sending stuff to that REPL. Instead, how Dr. Racket works is the user program is actually running inside of the same process as Racket. Now, what this means is that if your program has an error, then we don't want that error to propagate inside of Dr. Racket. And there's many ways in which we can consider something an error. Things like running out of memory, things like taking too much time. You don't want the user program to be able to modify Dr. Racket's internal data structures. You can imagine there being a sort of a security property between two different programs running simultaneously in Dr. Racket. And a goal of the Racket virtual machine is to provide operating system-like isolation between different pieces of a Racket program. And so the Revenge of the Son of the Loose Machine paper talks about this idea that programming languages are very similar to operating systems. And it was really a push of a lot of the early research, especially that Matthew did in things like memory accounting and kill-safe abstractions. These were all really coming from an operating system perspective on languages. And that's what really got me interested in Racket in the beginning. And as you get into these ideas, you see these getting exposed. The research that you just talked about, the research and continuation passing style because of your web server. When you were jumping into Racket, do you remember what that mindset shift was when you were first getting into understanding a Lisp and picking up a Lisp coming from a C-based language to a Perl to actually getting and diving deep in and saying, well, if I'm going to start working in this, playing with this, understanding this, do you remember what that shift was? I think that when you first come to a functional programming language, I think there's like two or three stages that you have to go through. The first stage is to shift your focus from like a program-centric way of thinking to a data-centric way of thinking. And when I say data, I don't mean like objects and classes and things like that. But when you are writing a functional program, you are often trying to design a data structure and a large set of functions that work across this data structure. You know, there's the Perlis quote that, you know, 100 functions on one data structure are better than 10 functions on 10 data structures. And that data-oriented way of looking at things is also one of the reasons why we care about purity and immutability. Because if you're using effects to modify pieces of a data structure and the state of your system, then that means that if you're trying to understand what a piece of code does, you need to look at adjacent pieces of code that modify the same memory. In contrast, if you're programming to like well-known data interfaces, then you can perform a kind of compositional reasoning where you look at one piece of code in isolation. And that's a really important thing to get to understand. And what I would say is that when I was programming in Perl, I was programming like that because if you use mutation when you're building continuations, then it's hard to track the flow of effects because each continuation can be invoked multiple times on a web server. On the other hand, even my C background, I mean, I was programming like kernel stuff, which is not the most beautiful C programs. But another early thing that I did in C was I worked on a multi-user dungeon. Uh, I was one of like the administrators of this MUD called the Squaresoft MUD. And it was very well architected to have a more data-centric perspective. So I think that that was natural to me. The next thing that I think that you have to go through when you're starting to become a functional programmer is to appreciate the composability of the language itself, meaning that the language is designed to have few special cases. Anything that can be used in one position can be used in another position. So for example, there's no special notion of an operator, and an operator can only be in this kind of place, or there's no distinction between expressions and statements. We would like to make it so that there's one kind of syntactic form, and there's no special categories. And this is to promote the same modular reasoning that you do when you're designing your code 
when you're writing your code as well and from the perspective of the compiler. And I think that when you take that idea to heart, you start designing your code differently. Rather than writing, let's say, large monolithic functions, you start thinking about how can I divide up the work of what my program's going to do into a composable set of combinators to construct the thing that I want. And this is what gives you flexibility later on when you're at that prototyping stage, you sort of are building your combinator library. And then later on, when you discover what you really need, it's easy to compose those combinators and get what you want. And I think that those two things are true of functional programming generally. And the various disciplines of functional programming, they really branch off from there about what things might be different. So for instance, in Haskell, at this point, you'd start thinking about, well, how can I build abstraction interfaces in type classes for the replaceable components of my code. If you're coming from the ML perspective, you want to think about, you know, modules and functors that serve a similar purpose to type classes. But I think the thing that's special about Racket is we have this third step, which is understanding the idea of a macro. And the key idea of a macro is, is that there's abstraction that exists on the value level. That's what a function is. If you have one way to compute a value and you want to abstract over some unknown pieces, then you'll create a function. But sometimes you have an abstraction where the result is not a value, but the result is another abstraction in the language, so another kind of language form. Now, with lexical closures and in all functional languages, that's kind of a way of abstracting over function abstractions. But you may want to abstract over definitions of structures or definitions of entire sets of functions together. And that's what a macro is really for. And something that Racket does specially is tries to make it so that it's invisible to you, whether you're using a built-in kind of syntax, whether you're using a function, or whether you're using a macro. And this is to make it so that there's no difference in sort of stature between each of those different components of the language. Some popular languages right now that have macros don't really do this first-classness in the same way. I'm thinking in particular of Rust that has macros, but they're specially flagged. And so you know if you're using a macro or if you're using a built-in thing. And I think that that is ultimately detrimental to the adoption of macros, but I understand why they made that choice. And if we rewind back to your history, you mentioned getting in on Unix early on and Slackware and Linux and working with that for the longest time. And people talk about the Unix philosophy theoretically. And sometimes you get programs that diverge just because there's all the setup. But did that kind of align with your Unix background where you're thinking in data transformation and piping things through Unix commands and composing Unix commands together to get what you did? Or was there just a different way of thinking about it that made you realize, okay, I've already been doing this in the MUDs and these other things and continuation passing stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Unix, I think, I think it's kind of funny because your random Unix grognard, you don't really think of them as being a functional programmer. But I think that a lot of the ethos of Unix goes well with functional programming. I think one problem, maybe, is that there are many cases where the Unix philosophy fails, at least with the tools that we have right now. Just as an example, I mean, like, LS, the standard LS has a way to sort inside of it rather than piping to sort. Now, it would be really inconvenient to always have to pipe to sort. So maybe what the correct thing to do is make your own little private set of bin utilities for, oh, well, this is ls pipe to sort and, and so on. And I think that there's this push to combine things together in Unix to produce a nice user interface. I mean, the first text editor that I ever used was ed. So I don't know if you know what ed is, but in ed, you get to see a single line of your program at a time, and then you can type in a number to go to a different line and you can replace the line that you're looking at. And so this is the way that I first learned how to write C programs and Pascal programs. And eventually, like VI and stuff like that were around where you can go throughout things. And, and VI used to like directly communicate commands down to ed. But nowadays, Vim combines, like you can, if you run ed, you might really be running a version of Vim with, that doesn't have the visual interface, but they're not actually two separate programs now. I think that it would be really fascinating to see how far one could go with the Unix philosophy with just a little bit more richness of data types. And I think that that's really what hurts Unix is that 
the file as a list of bytes, one for each line, or as just a byte string is extremely powerful for making millions of tools that work on the same data type. But I think that there needs to be just a little bit more richness to live completely inside of the terminal. That's sort of one of those pipe dream kinds of things. Like, oh, if I had infinite time, let's rewrite Unix with a different data type. And that's what I was getting at is they talk about the Unix philosophy, as you mentioned, LS and a bunch of these others. And, well, we're having to reparse arguments for every single program. And it seems like some of the lists and functional programming languages have taken that Unix philosophy at its core and just pushed that down, but at a language level instead of the OS level, as you were talking about. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that is a good way to to think about how you'd like to develop a programming language. I think something as well, going down that path as a programming language, I think has not been very successful. I think of things like Smalltalk, where the standard way to think about Smalltalk is you run your computer, and then on the side, you run a separate Smalltalk computer. And there's been this historical problem of how do you get data in and out of this sealed-off environment? And programming languages that are very willing to communicate with the outside world, both in terms of like network APIs, but also just being good Unix citizens, I think have a lot more success. And I think that, I think that that sort of tells you a little bit of the danger of going too far down the language is an operating system path. Inside of the racket world, something that we're really concerned about is how to describe the interoperability between programming languages that have different assumptions about the world. The two classic examples of this are how does a a managed program like Racket or JavaScript or Python work with the C world where things are not managed? How do you keep the garbage collected memory safe from the ungarbage collected memory? And there's tons of work on this. But I think inside of Racket, we do something a little bit more, which is that we're concerned about how does the untyped part of your program work with the typed part of your program. Because type safety is a clear analog to memory safety, where there's one part of your program that is enforcing the types and another part of your program that is trusting the programmer to manage the types correctly. And a lot of our work in contracts and the interaction between those two worlds is, I think, something that makes Racket a little bit special that a lot of other languages could learn from. And you kind of started to answer the question of taking that Unix philosophy, moving it into a programming language, because you had also mentioned that Dr. Reckett was kind of doing that and kind of half an operating system and half a programming language because you're now running all these other programming languages. And there's been a lot of work and evolution over the years from what is called PLT scheme to being migrated to Racket and Dr. Racket. Yeah, definitely. Um one of the things that's most Unixy, I would say, about Racket today is, you know, when you write a Racket program, we, like inside of the Racket world, especially in the implementation side, we think of there being the Racket virtual machine, which is a C virtual machine, just like the JVM or the CLR. And then on top of that, it's a platform that runs lots of languages. And so when you are a Racket programmer, you're going to start off every single program with hashling and then what language you would like to write in. So, you know, maybe it's racket base, or maybe it's data log, or maybe it's scribble, or typed racket, or something like that. And that is very similar to how when you're writing a Unix script, you start off with hashbang, and then you write down the program that will be the compiler or the interpreter for whatever the shell script is. So in the same way that Unix has this way of saying, well, there's a native format, that's the binaries for this operating system. But there's also a way of specifying some other program that's going to transform this particular program into the native environment. Now, it doesn't work exactly the same way. You know, Hashlane Datalog is not literally a, an interpreter in the same way that Hashbin Shell is. But it's a similar idea that we really think of Racket as being a platform for lots of languages. And the thing that Racket provides to that platform it provides one thing for the authors of the languages, namely that it gives a lot of helpful tools for building their compiler as a macro. And it also tries to enforce the multi-language communication ideas that we have. So for instance, it helps you decide, well, what data can flow from one kind of language to another? 
It gives you the ability to put contracts and chaperones on those things, and it provides efficient garbage collection and things like that. I think that there are a lot more work that we can do in this way, just to say two kind of totally different examples. When you have a language like Datalog, Datalog is guaranteed to terminate in cubic time because we know that the set of facts that can be derived is closed. And a natural thing that you might want to do is inject relations into Datalog from another programming language. And doing that in a way that is safe, meaning preserves the invariance about Datalog evaluation, is not something we currently do. And I don't really think that there's any, uh, at least I'm not aware of any good research on how to do this well. I know there's lots of functional logic languages. And there's been a recent paper, I think, like last popple or this popple on data fund that I'd like to learn more about. But anyway, so that's sort of one side where the invariant that you want to enforce is not really type safety, not memory safety. It's this other kind of thing. And I think in the long run, we'd really like to be able to have a verified version of Racket in addition to the typed version of Racket that corresponds to what languages like Coq and Agda provide for programmers. So when I look at the Racket project, I think of it as this virtual machine and this network of interacting languages. And so you get into Racket, you start working in Racket as a user, and then you start working in Racket as... A racketeer, I guess. You start working in Racket as someone who's contributing to the library and ecosystem. Was that part of a grad school work, or what was the thing that moved you from just using Racket to actually contributing to Racket? Sure. So, first of all, I would say that anyone that uses Racket, they can be a racketeer if they want. There's then, of course, committers and contributors and whatnot, and a small group of people that give out commit access and whatnot. We call that racket management. So right now I'm one of the racket management people. Now, for me personally, like I mentioned before, I'm interested in the continuation-based web server back when I was an undergrad. And I immediately started making changes to it and fixing errors and so on. And it just happened that the previous maintainer had started a job somewhere else. And so the code wasn't really being maintained. So it was natural for them to say, this is some person who's making changes. Let's let him do it. So my first commits were to the web server back when I was not attached to anybody as a grad student. Now, I wanted to do a PhD in computer science. And so I knew that I wanted to work on this intersection of programming languages and operating systems. So I applied to the schools of people that worked on Racket. So I applied to you know Northeastern, where Matthias Felison was, University of Chicago, where Robbie was at the time, University of Utah, where Matthew Flatt was and Brown University, where Sriram Krishnamurthy was. I had a meeting with them, and I became one of Sriram's students. And right away, the way that I think about people in the Racket world is, we have Racket, which is the programming language project, but then we also have PLT, which is the name of our research group. And it used to be that PLT, their main product was PLT Scheme, which was a programming language. But there were lots of other things that PLT did as well. And we've separated the two a little bit, where there's people in the research group that don't explicitly work on Racket, and there's people in the Racket world that are not part of the PLT group. So at that point, I joined PLT because I was one of the descendants of Matthias Felison. Now, um, my perspective on PLT students today is, is that they should have their normal PhD project, and if their PhD project naturally helps Racket, then that's really good. And if they want to be part of the Racket project, then they should find some way to do some Racket work along the way. For example, my previous PhD student, Neil Toronto, his work as a PLT student was primarily on probabilistic programming languages. Now, it so happened that he was really passionate about Racket and improving it, so he built the new plot library, he built the PICT3D library, he built the uh, new math library as well. So he, he did a lot of work in the Racket, Racket infrastructure because us in the PLT group, we have this common heritage of Racket. So I went through a similar process where when I was a grad student, I got really involved in the web server, maintaining it, making it better. We used to run a conference management system called Continue that I managed. And I was one of the first people to work on documentation in our Scribble format. And there was a time when the only Scribble users were me and Matthew, and I guess Ellie as well. So anyways, so but my actual PhD project was really something totally different. And my guess is that most people in the in the racket world don't really really know what my PhD was about. But basically, I built a very large system in Coq to formally verify a compiler for security protocols. 
So I've always had these sort of twin loves of racket and then uh, interactive theorem proving with the cock theorem prover. And when it's possible, I try to combine them together, but oftentimes it's just two totally separate strands of research and work. And just for clarification, you mentioned the PLT group and being different from racket. What is the focus of the PLT group in and of itself? I think that there's the advertising reason for the PLT group's existence, which would be that we're interested in pushing programming language theory forward. And because we descend from Matthias Felleisen, there's a strong push for untyped programs as a natural way for humans to express what they want, where we care about the greater expressive power of the untyped world while desiring reliable software, which pushes us towards ever more and more expressive type systems. And I think that that's sort of the advertising reason. But the real reason I think PLT exists is that we all like each other and we're all descendants of Matthias. And Matthias is such a great person that he has a real unique way of keeping communities together and connecting his PhD students with each other to help one another get the research done that they want. And so PLT is, in that sense, it's like a research family of people helping one another when they're doing programming language research. And so a lot of the path of the PLT group really is the path of where Matthias started in the 80s, wondering about what's the best way to program in an untyped world, getting as close to reliable software as you can. And so we've brought it up a number of times. People have probably heard the term, but can you give a high-level overview of what continuations are and continuation passing style? Because we've mentioned that as the web server over and over again. But for anybody who's unfamiliar with it, can we give a 30,000-foot view? Sure. Let me explain it in a few different ways. So the first way to understand it is that every time that a program is running, there is some point in the program where work is currently happening. Imagine that we're evaluating a complicated arithmetic expression, and deep down inside of it and nested in the parentheses, there's a 1 plus 2 in there. Well, the 1 plus 2 is the work that's happening right now, and all the rest of the arithmetic expression is the continuation. It's the computation that the answer to the current work will be put into. Now, a continuation is something that exists in every form of computation because it's the remainder of work to be done. So we can take the concept of continuation and use it to describe something that's happening in any programming language. Now, in most programming language implementations, the continuation corresponds to the stack. Because what the stack does is it records the return addresses of the caller of the current function. So if you're evaluating a function, that's the work that you're doing right now. And when this work is done, you will return back to some earlier part of the program. Now, just then I said it's an earlier part of the program, but one thing to remember is that it's actually a part of the program that you've never been to before, because it's actually the future of your computation. It may be inside of an earlier stack frame, meaning like inside of some earlier function, but it's actually future work to be done. This, as an aside, leads to a great confusion among a lot of programmers that they think that the stack trace tells them where their computation has been when it actually tells them where their computation is going. And um, that's an important thing to realize as a young programmer, that the history of your data is separate from the stack trace. Now, the idea of a continuation is simply that, the remainder of the computation. Now, there's lots of ways that continuations are put into practice in programming. I'll give you a few examples. So the first example is on a website. So on a website, you have the stateless HTTP protocol where you ask the web server to give you a page. The web server responds with a page, and now the connection is gone. Logically, it's gone, but of course, now it's often optimized and the connection stays open. But logically, there's no connection between adjacent requests on HTTP. So that means that if you need to refer to something again from the last time that the server talked to you, you need to tell the server, hey, this is what was happening. And that identifier of, hey, this is what was happening, is embedded inside of your HTML in the action URL of a form or something like that. Now, what's really going on there is that the web server is encoding its continuation in some way, writing that down as the action, 
and then allowing the client to recall the server, say, here's the information that you wanted, and then resume what was happening then. Web applications like this are not really popular anymore. What I just described would be very typical of like an early 2000s style um, web server. Nowadays, web applications use continuations in a different way. So in JavaScript, JavaScript wants to have a sort of a soft real-timeness to it, where uh, we don't want, inside of a browser, a computation to run for too long because it will choke the Chrome and make it so that the user can't interact. So there's basically like a little time limit on all of the actions that you can do in JavaScript. And most of the APIs that the browser provides to you in the DOM are asynchronous. So you can generate a request to an external site, and then it's non-blocking, meaning that the function doesn't return with the answer the way that you know you call sort and then it returns with the answer. Instead, when you call one of these functions that generates a request, you give it a function, and that function will be called with the result of the web request when it is available. Well, that function that you give, nowadays we call it a callback, but what you're really doing is you're giving the continuation of the web request. So that continuation tells what your program wants to do with the result of this particular function call. So it is an encapsulation of the continuation. Something that JavaScript programmers have observed is that it's really convenient to write these callback functions using closures, because the closure can capture over any local state that you need to remember for when the result is actually finished. But they have to produce them by hand. What would be convenient is if the programming language would provide a way to turn something that looked like a blocking call into one that obeyed the non-blocking API of the DOM or HTTP and so on. Programming languages that provide first-class continuations, such as Racket, um, the programming language basically gives you the ability to automatically say, what is the continuation at this point in the program, and name it as a value. And that produces automatically the function that you could give as a callback to one of these functions. So whether a programmer has heard this term before, they are certainly using continuations because they're using stacks almost almost certainly. And if they're a web programmer, they're probably writing continuations manually in the callbacks of their non-blocking web calls. But that's what the idea of a continuation is. And this intuition that web servers naturally are about building continuations is what the key idea of a continuation-based web server is. Lots of good food for thought there and interesting ways to put the pieces together for me. <clears throat> you put you put you managed to put some pieces together that I hadn't quite connected in the way you described it, and I would expect that some other people might have that aha moment too from that description. And so you start doing this, you start with this continuation web server, you get in more, you mentioned Scribble, you started working on a bunch of other stuff in Racket. What were some of those things that got on your radar that you said, hey, I think that I want to try this and tackle this? Because you've done a lot. What were some of those ones that kind of excited you about digging in and making this deeper, richer environment? Sure. I think about this in terms of the software that I wrote, right? I'm I'm really into publishing open source software, and I write software when I have annoyances in my life. So if something's inconvenient, then I'll try to write software around it. And if that software is useful for other people, then that's great. So some of the things I've worked on is, you know, obviously doing more stuff with the web server. The way that I just described continuations, that value of the current continuation in Racket, it's a Racket data type that cannot be serialized and cannot be shared with another instance of the Racket virtual machine. So I worked on a way to serialize those and share them across different VM instances as a way to do load balancing and scalability of Racket web servers. Inside of the Racket development process, we do regular releases, and we want to have well-tested regular releases. So it used to be that, you know, we'd send, when I say used to, I mean like, you know, almost like eight or nine years ago, I guess now, we used to send around an email saying, please run your tests. And I found this really annoying because I didn't want to find out that there was an error right around release time. So I built this system called Doctor Doctor, um, which every single time there's a commit to any Racket repository, 
the entire Racket infrastructure is rebuilt. So it re- it rebuilds and runs, I think right now, about a little less than 20,000 different Racket files and spent a lot of time working on how we test Racket code, how we know, what are the protocols for different testing APIs to say that they were successful. And so I worked on that for a while, and now lots of people use Dr. Doctor in the Racket world, and we kind of rely on it for most of our testing. I took some excursions to build new kinds of contract systems with Cormac Flanagan, one of my academic uncles. So we have this system called Temporal Contracts, where you can basically impose a contract on a function that that says, this function will receive two function arguments, A and B, and it's allowed to call A and B, but it can only call A after it's called B. And so you can put these temporal constraints on the way in which functions are called. This is similar to uh, how session types work. I went down a, a very deep hole of learning about graphic programming, and so I built an OpenGL rendering engine for Racket for doing 2D animation called Mode Lambda, because I have always had an interest in video game programming. And then I've been involved in a lot of other special projects for Racket. So the designer of the um, new uh, Racket package system, new as of you know two or three years ago, but it's now the default way that people distribute software on Racket. And there's lots of differences between it and the way that things used to happen. And yeah, so I try to be involved in lots of things. Right now, my main goals are to scratch my personal itches figure out ways to help new PhD students succeed in what they want to do with their life, and generally polish Racket. I mean, I could talk about some of the ideas that I have for Racket going forward, but that's kind of a quick summary of the things I've been doing in the past. And before we started recording, you did mention the next version of Racket. So maybe it's time to talk about some of those ideas you have or some of the things that should be at least on people's radar in the near future and some of the stuff that you've got ideas for in the longer term. Sure. So for me, as a lover of Racket, who have been involved in it for, you know, a decade now, and it predates me, I feel like saying that you want to make Racket 2 is like saying you want to make like chess 2 or football number 2, you know, some amazing thing. How can you really make a second version of it? But nevertheless, I'm to the point where whenever I program Racket, I, I think about things that I don't like, and I think about ways that I could improve them. But to have a little bit less hubris, I call my effort Racket Remix, just as a way to, if people don't like it, then it doesn't have to be Racket 2, it's just Remix, which is some other thing. So the idea behind Remix is that if we look at the history of Racket, there's many things that that Racket has that are kind of cruft from earlier generations. So, for example, nowadays, something that's really special about Racket is the module system. And if you're a casual user of Racket, you might read the reference manual, And you'll come to the section on units, and you'll say, wow, units, they're pretty neat. They seem like the thing that I should use if I want to write modular software. And it turns out that actually units predate modules. And so there's many cases in the Racket code base where there's a unit that we really should do a a module, but no one's bothered to rewrite the code. And it can be confusing to understand what the difference between this is. Other examples are like, the Racket class system right now is very advanced, but actually the code base contains three or four other class systems that predate the current one. So what I'm trying to emphasize is the idea that Racket, it's very evolutionary in the sense that there's many attempts to apply some knowledge that we've had, and it stays around, but we never really cut ties with things that we've seen before to make improvements for the future. So, for example, a lot of the core syntactic forms in Racket, like, I'm talking about extremely basic things like define and making a conditional. They don't learn from the ways that we have figured out how to write macros in the last 15 years. They are basically exactly the same scheme code from R5RS 20 years ago. And that's not bad because it means that casual instructors can take a book like The Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs or Essentials of Programming Languages that are textbooks designed for Scheme, and pretty painlessly just use the main Racket programming language. The problem, however, is that we have learned good things about how to design macros and systems since then. So what Remax is an attempt to do 
is to go back a little bit to the drawing board and do new things. And I'll summarize that in a, what I hope is a, is a simple way. Functional programming languages in general try to remove the specialness of different parts of the programming language. There's no special category for operators. There's no special category for arithmetic functions. Instead, there's just function calls and normal function definitions. So by removing the specialness of operators, we create a more uniform language that has all sorts of desirable properties. Well, inside of Racket, there are certain things that are very special. For example, the formal name position of lambdas. It has to be an identifier with a very strict syntax. That means that you can't write a macro that is executed inside of the lambda arguments that expands differently to maybe do something different in the body of a function or expand to multiple arguments or things like that. So what I'm interested in Remix is how can we go through the Racket language syntax and make it so that really every position has some notion of macro expansion on that so that we can create a more extensible language. And that's both on the level of notation, on the level of core syntactic forms, things like normalizing the library. And so those are like the high-level ideas. And there's lots of little things that come with that. To mention just a few, a pain that a lot of programmers have when they first use a parenthetical language is that they feel like every part of the program looks the same, which, as I mentioned before, is kind of the point, right? By nothing being special, that means that everything really does look the same. But we know that as humans, it is valuable to see differences to communicate difference. But when you're looking at a common list program and you only see parentheses everywhere, it's very, it's very confusing. Early on in Racket, we made the decision to allow brackets and braces to be used in place of parentheses as long as they're used consistently. And I think that a lot of programmers find programming in Racket ever so slightly better than programming in common list because of that. Well, I think that the problem with that is, is that it was wise for us to allow those, but not to give them the exact same meaning as parentheses. And so in Remix, we're going to make it so that brackets mean something different than parentheses, but they mean something that is extensible, so that different module contexts can define the meaning of, of brackets differently. And you know, if you look at my RacketCon presentation from last year, I give a lot of examples of how we could do this. And the other notational thing that I think will have a big impact on the life of programmers is adding a C-style dot notation so that you can do something like p.x and have that be meaningful even in an untyped program. So trying to design a meaning for dot that is macro-extensible. So those are a few things that are kind of on the roadmap for Racket 2. But the big idea is to take the idea of modularity and macro-extension and go even further than we do right now, which we can only do if we leave some of the history of Racket behind. And we've covered quite a bit, and we looked at the future, but is there anything else that you think we should at least let the audience know about or make mention to around Racket? I think that so many people, they experience Racket first from an educational context, where they think that Racket isn't that just that weird programming environment that I used in my university class on programming language theory, and they don't realize that it is a full-fledged programming environment for letting them solve really any problem that they're interested in. They don't realize the industrial impact of it. So I think that that would be a good thing to reiterate. And I think that the other thing is, is that some people, they hear, oh, you know, making macros, all these things, that sounds really complicated. That sounds like the sort of thing that a serious person making their own new serious language does. But building domain-specific languages is really a design philosophy of software building. And a recent book that just got published by Matthew Butterick called Beautiful Racket tries to teach this idea that domain-specific languages are a low-floor, high-ceiling kind of design technique that anyone can apply in their work. And I would highly recommend anyone interested in learning more about Racket would look at that. I feel like there's lots of people that say, oh, I'm a closure programmer, I you know, program in Lisp, I know everything that I should need to know about Racket. And I think that Matthew's book, Beautiful Racket, does a really good job of teaching the difference between 
traditional Lisp-style programming and the additional things that the Racket environment would give you. And then you also mentioned, and I want to kind of let leave time to touch on just at a very high level, you mentioned you did some cock and you're excited about the type stuff. Can you give a high-level pitch of some of these other enhanced contracts and verification stuff that you're hoping for and just a overview of how you get verification like cock in something that's more of the dynamic we want this to be untyped we want this to be super extensible and how you kind of see potentially in the future from a high level overview of how would those two marry together in your view sure so the first thing is i find verified programming to be very fascinating because when we first learn computability theory as an undergraduate the emphasis is that look turing machines they're so powerful anything that you could possibly want to do you can do with a turing machine but wow look at these things that you can't do and the essential thing that you can't do is you can't know something about the program the halting problem is really a statement about can we know if this program will finish at all and finishing at all is sort of like an a first step to knowing if your program is right. So verified programming is very fascinating because it sort of affronts this assumption that we can't know if our program's right. And the key idea is, well, let's actually take away programming power. And languages like Hawk are not Turing-complete. A simple way to understand this is that a Turing-complete language allows you to write an infinite loop that doesn't make any progress towards making an answer. In contrast, when you're programming talk, you do not have the ability to write an infinite loop. Every time you do recursion, you have to guarantee that that recursive process will eventually stop. And there's a way to do that well that is not too onerous, but I mean, it is still complicated. And so programming talk is very fascinating in that way because you're essentially asking the question, how much work can I do with kind of a weak language? But it's weak in ways that are kind of ways that you don't want. I think of it in terms of like racing. I really like Formula One racing. So if you were doing racing and you didn't have, you want to like decrease the weight of your car. So let's just like throw out the brakes, for instance. That does make you go faster, but it's maybe a, a burden that you want to have. You'd like to be able to brake. So anyways, cock programming is all about adding those restrictions in. And it's very enjoyable to think about how do I know precisely if my program is right? Something that I've been working on recently in Coq is extending the Coq system to not only allow you to prove the correctness of a program, an example of correctness is like my sorting function. Does it really produce a sorted permutation of the original input? That's a correctness property. What this environment does is it lets you prove something about the runtime of the program as well. So you write your sorting algorithm and you can prove that this runs in linear time or, you know, it runs in like n log n or something like that. And so, I really am interested in how much we can know about what programs do and are supposed to do. Now, in terms of how this connects with the untyped world, I think that there's a lot of people in the verified programming world that sort of think, well, let's just convert everybody to verified programming and just work really hard going through and verifying all the pieces of software that are out there. I think that this is a, a noble idea, but I think that it's sort of fundamentally flawed because proof systems, because of the Godel incompleteness theorem, are inherently limited. And saying that we have to always prove that things are right rather than trusting human intuition is essentially saying that there's, it's sort of like inhumane in the sense of disrespecting that humans can really figure out what's right. And so I think there are many times when humans can reason about something and know that it's correct, but not be able to produce a convincing proof to that effect. And so because of that, I think there's always a, a case for untyped things to exist. So I think in the long run, what we want is an environment where, in the same way that we have like performance kernels of functional software, where you'll have your functional program and you'll have a performance kernel that you know is implemented in C or assembly or something like that. I think that it makes sense to have verified kernels where you have a piece of your software that only calls other verified things but is called by an externally unverified context. And I think that's the only sound way 
to think about using verification. And of course, it has to be called in a non-higher-order way. Because if it's called in a higher-order way, that means that the verified kernel would call back. But it can't do that because then it doesn't know if the outside will um, do things correctly. And that's very different than how typed racket works. Because in typed racket, neither side is sort of on the top. Typed racket can call into untyped racket, untyped racket can call back into typed, and so on. But I think the same cannot quite be true about verification if you have complete verification, including termination checking. On the other hand, I think that something that we've got a lot of benefit from inside of Racket is to understand that there are many different layers of guarantees that you can provide. You can provide memory safety, you can provide type safety, you can provide dependent types, you can provide dependent contracts. I think that there's a spectrum of different kinds of verification where on one end are environments like Coq. On a totally other end, there's assembly programming that is completely undisciplined. And I think that a long-term goal for Racket is to be a language that is truly full-spectrum, where you can write programs that exist at any point in that spectra and have well-defined ways of communicating with programs written above you or below you. And I think that we are seeing the beginning of that now with Racket and typed Racket and the unsafe subset of Racket and so on. But I think that the long-run mission of Racket is to do more things like this. And there's lots of good food for thought there. And that's one of the things that I can see both sides of the dynamic story and the typed and verified story and why they appeal. And it always seems like one of those things, how do you get those two to meet in the middle? And so that'll be interesting to see uh, the approach Racket takes down the line with finding that heavy balance, as you said, of here's your verified part and here's your unverified part and here's how that you can get them to have each when you need it instead of saying, well, I can only have one or the other. Yeah, I think that there's a real danger in programming. Like everyone jokes, right, that programming languages, sometimes people treat them like religions where they have these religious wars of, oh, untyped or dynamic typed or only static types ever. I think that this is unproductive. I think that we are concerned with humans being able to express solutions to problems. That's what programming is all about. And we're interested in humans helping one another with the objects of their creation, the programs, and seeing how we can make the world a better place through them. And there are many different approaches to solving things, and we should be interested in learning from one another, not fighting with each other. So I think that there are many people in the untyped world that, you know, they turn up their heads to, you know, oh, Haskell did something, oh, we don't care about that, or oh, what are you doing wasting your time going to see what's happening over in the Haskell world. But I think that we're all interested in ultimately the same things, and we want to learn from one another. And I think it is a little bit natural because, especially if you're a researcher, it's very easy to make your whole life. If you make your whole life about the project that you're working on, then you'll do a better job, I think, than a lot of people who will be wishy-washy and go between different things. And I think that the more you focus on exactly one way of doing it, then you'll be sort of blind to the benefits that others bring. But I try to encourage my PhD students and the other you know, young people that I interact with to be ecumenical in their appreciation of programming languages. We don't have to not learn or not benefit from the great things that are happening in the Haskell world, and they're truly great. That sounds like some great ending advice for people to think about. And it is, as I mentioned in the pre-call, one of the reasons I enjoy doing the show is hearing about all those different ideas and figuring out where they fit or not, depending on what part of the problems I'm trying to solve. So I'm excited to see how Racket helps develop some of this stuff to have a good example of actually taking that balance and bringing balance and taking the parts that fit for their domains and making that applicable in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just my goal to help people today so that I can be a service to them and also to do what I can to to push computer science progress in some way so that in, you know, a thousand years, the things that we'll know and remember about computer science, a small part of that will be something that I had some part in producing. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to plug? Do you have any other appearances or talks that you're going to be giving in the future or just anything else you want to make sure people know about? If you're in the New England area, I'm organizing the 
New England Programming Language Symposium, where researchers in programming languages will present drafts of papers prior to big conferences. So if you see the proceedings of conferences like Popular PLDI and you say, oh, you know, I really want to hear that, but I don't want to go to Cambridge or I don't want to go to Barcelona. A lot of us are in the Boston area. And so I'll be doing that. In the fall, we have another edition of RacketCon. And another thing that I'm involved in is I do these deep dives into the Racket code base with implementers called the Inside Racket Seminar, where we will walk through some of the more interesting pieces of code in Racket and try to show people how some of these exciting features are used. But I'm always happy to help people learn about Racket, so feel free to email me if you'd like advice about using it in your workplace or how to use some feature. The Racket community, we care about people. And then you mentioned your email, but where are some of the other places for people to find you online and follow along and just keep an eye on what you're doing in the future? So probably the easiest place to find me is on GitHub. So on GitHub, I'm J-E and then the word apostrophe. But actually, if you just Google Jay McCarthy, and other than the Australian racing cyclist, I'm the whole front page. And so you can find my GitHub page, you can find my Twitter profile, and so on. And from GitHub, you'll see a lot of the, the stuff that I'm working on, and you'll find a way to contact me. And I'll get links in the show notes so people can short-circuit some of that and find you online as well through Google searches if they need more. Sure. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Jay, for taking your time to join me. It was a pleasure talking with you. And as I go back and edit this, I'm sure I'll hook out more insights and connections that you outlined. And you've at least given me today, and I hope the rest of the audience, a couple new ways to think about some of these things that we may already be familiar with and put a new spin and a new light on them. So thanks for taking the time to join me today. And it was very educational, informative, and enjoyable. Absolutely. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.